Being an expert sucks. As a teacher of spiritual intelligence and emotional health, I get cornered into being the guy who has all the answers. I'd like to take this opportunity to make a confession. I don't. What I do have are convictions. I have theories. I have questions. I find myself looking around and I'm like, we can't stay here. Stop setting up your tent. We can't stay here. Through my journey, it's become evident that being a participant is no longer enough. It's time to become reformers. These are my confessions. To get deeper in this conversation, visit MikeMayashiro.com. Hi, welcome to Confessions of a Reformer. It's Mike today. I'm alone, and I want to talk to you about something that is a bit of a mixed bag, for me at least, at this point in my life. It's something many of us share culturally. Um, as kids, we looked forward to it. It was like one of the best times of the year. We were so excited. Uh, and now, as an adult, it's not so much something I look forward to, and it's more something that I've had to wrestle with, and like my relationship with it has definitely changed in the last couple of years, especially. But even like culturally, it's been such a different experience and my evolution, the evolution of my experience here um, has been something to, to wrestle with. So I'm talking about Christmas. <laughs> Christmas, the season, the holiday, um, Christmas, the story within Christianity. I'm talking about all of it. So if you've been listening to my podcast for any length of time, you know that I was raised Baptist. I got saved when I was four, right? Inducted into the Baptist religion at a young age and grew up being told, you know, the trope, like Jesus died on the cross for my sins because I was a filthy sinner. And like, we're not gonna get into all that, you know, you know that that story, but underneath all of it, when it comes to the Christmas part of this, um, let's explore, shall we? Um, so the mixed bag part of this for me is like, I love Christmas. Some part of me genuinely revels in it. I think traditionally the you know the snow christmas tree lights ornaments gifts food home hearth christmas music like i'm a fan i like it as a season i have like sentimental nostalgia like wrapped up in all of it and i enjoy it and i think it's also aesthetically beautiful i love that right that's all true um now spiritually religiously historically christmas has like held a pretty significant place in my heart. Christmas time, as a kid especially, always had this reverent vibe to it for me. I always remember thinking, oh, this is like Jesus's birthday, right? And Jesus was is the most important human that's ever lived. So it's the king of the world's birthday. We got to celebrate and our celebration needs to be complete and thorough and genuine and lavish. So there's always like that reverence. But then when I was 18, 19, that time in my life, um, there was a period of time where I started, I'm going to use like some old language here because I don't really have new language for it yet. But that was a period in my life where I started to encounter God. Um, I met God and then kept meeting God. I don't know. I don't know. I just, I need better language and I'm hoping eventually to to find that. But right now it's, uh, I met God encountered God. Uh, They were different than I thought. I didn't know you could know God like that. It was profound. It was life-changing. It was beautiful. It was devastating. Like, all those things are true. And right around the corner when this started happening in my life, 
was the Christmas season. So I went into the Christmas season, I think I was 19 at this point, with this raw sensitivity. I remember that time of my life being a very exposed experience. I felt very available, <laughs> but like in scary ways, like my heart was open and I was so sensitive to the nature of love and kindness and gentleness and tenderness, like, ugh. And growing up in a very intensely patriarchal world, that was not a like safe thing to be feeling or to be sensitive about. Now, instead of going into all the things and trying to cover every little aspect of this experience, I'm just gonna tell you a singular story, a specific moment in that season that kind of captures a lot of it. Um, just to give you an idea of my relationship with Christmas and how it was affecting me, I went to a Christmas Eve service, right? And they hand out the candles. And, like they, the pastor had gotten up and like read, I think, the beginning of Luke and just talked about the beauty of Jesus, his birth, he came to save us, all this stuff. Which, you know, I fully bought all of that back then. Um, fully drank deeply. Like, yes, totally. Oh, God, thank you for saving me. Thank you for coming to us. Thank you for entering our lowly, pathetic state and being saddled with our existence. Thank you so much. Right? I say that now with a bit of disdain. Um, intentionally so. I don't feel jaded or bitter. I'm like, this is filthy. Like, to indoctrinate a whole group of people to base their perspective of themselves and humanity in general on depravity and unworthiness and then like pay homage to your deity for being gracious enough and generous enough and humble enough to have relationship with us to choose us even though we're filthy and evil and you know like it's just that whole narrative is at this point is filthy and disgusting to me because um, I, I don't think it represents God at all. I don't think it's godly. Um, I understand it's quote-unquote biblical. I understand that narrative is throughout um, scriptural texts. I get that. I just think we are misunderstanding things we should know now about this person of God, about Christ, and about us. Anyway, so I'm going to leave that alone. I'm going to try and um, resist the temptation to get off on all those tangents. They hand out these candles. We are singing some carols afterward, right? After the service. And everyone's like lighting the candle next to them. And it just kind of goes down like a wave, um, like telephone, but with fire. And it's like this really beautiful, incandescent, glowing ambiance, right? And you're singing these songs. So we're singing, Oh Holy Night, while this is happening. And listen, remember the state that I was in. Like, it wasn't just a moment. It was like six months of my life. So raw and sensitive specifically to the nature of God is how I describe that. And so now here we're going to go, we're going to sing this song about like the holy night that, that God was born on. So the song goes, Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. Right. We're going to move on. Um, later, there's this part of the song. <laughs> I'm going to sing it for you. This is going to be an intimate little weird experience we're going to have together. You're welcome. Um, Truly he taught us to love one another. Who needs a key? It's, it's fine. Don't judge me. I'm not, I'm not a singer. Anyway, it goes on. At some point in that line or that verse, it goes, Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. Right? And I am losing it at that point of the song. I'm sobbing. I am a wet, embarrassing mess. I can't keep it together. I am a basket case for probably for several reasons, right? And in hindsight, I look back and it's like obvious 
you know, what I was working through and feeling and I wasn't conscious of, but absolutely being affected by. At the time, I didn't know how connected I was to this in my own story. Um, but, you know, you look back, I was living in chains. I was living an oppressed life, right? I'm like deeply in the closet. I don't get to be free. I don't get to be myself. I don't, like, not even forget anyone else's opinion or perspective. I am fully in, like, in chains. Oops, sorry. From me. <laughs> I have imprisoned myself. I hate myself. I have fully like drunk deep of the heterosexist, homophobic, anti-gay rhetoric, and I'm gay. So painful, right? There's such a dissonance. Um, but also just like touching that there are other people in the world who aren't me, who aren't gay, but they are in other ways oppressed. They are being discarded, um, unjustly treated. This oppression is like taxing their lives and Jesus is going to set them free. Jesus is going to break their chains, right? All oppression is going to disappear. That possibility is unfathomable. And yet, you know, in God, like, oh, it's true. And it just kind of has a prophetic vision of like casting your eyes toward a future and a possibility you can't conceive of on your own. But you're like, hey, somewhere, someday, somehow, <laughs> right? This is going to happen. Heaven, like, it is a powerful... Um, like spell to be spun into, right? And so Christianity is compelling because of the whole heaven component, right? Jesus is going to absorb the blows on our behalf, is going to take away all of the toxic, poisonous, harmful things that we all can't help but choose. And one day, God's going to wipe away every tear, going to bring everyone back to life, going to remove all the pain, going to give us eternal existence, right? This euphoric, beautiful land of perfection, like who's not, who doesn't want that? Amazing. Um, but for me, it wasn't the heaven piece. It was the liberation for sure. And underneath that though, there was an, a still a deeper, like <laughs> reverence and awe for the kindness and goodness and justice of God. That, that despite what I saw around me, what I experienced from other Christians, God was present <laughs> and available and cared and was moving in my heart and mind. I'm not trying to downplay this experience because it is still like a profound and beautiful memory in my heart. And I'm thankful for it. <laughs> Here's the deal. Um, I didn't do my research back then on the validity of the birth story of Jesus. I didn't look into historical texts. I didn't look into how I interpreted scripture. I wasn't checking any historians and their work and their findings. Uh, I didn't understand how literal my take on the Bible even was. I was swimming in water and no idea, had no idea water existed, right? Uh, and that's, I think it's true for the majority of Christians. We don't vet the things that we believe. That our predecessors tell us what to think and believe about Jesus and God and the world and whatever. And then they point to this ancient book and show us in the text where their ideas are being ratified. And when we see them written, printed in the book, this phenomenon happens where we accept the idea as gospel fact, as truth. Because there it is in black and white or in red letters, printed in the Bible, making it empirical truth. For not just us, for everyone. There's no scholarship in that. 
<laughs> there's no accountability in that. There's no actual due diligence or personal responsibility that's ex being exercised in that exchange. But most of us form our beliefs about the world and ourselves and people and specifically God on that very practice. That's literally what I did for so long. I'm embarrassed to admit it, but that was like, that was the deal. Like they told me what to think or believe. And usually it was like a pastor. Usually it was a man. Usually that man was white. Usually he was standing on a stage or had a microphone and told me these things. And then told me to turn in my Bible and then read to me verbatim in this ancient book, you know, words to support the idea that he was telling me. And because those two things were correlating, because they supported each other, you know, in that experience, I accepted it as truth. I didn't think that I was irresponsible or like failing to do the due diligence that was necessary for the kind of truth claims that I was making as a Christian back then. In fact, I thought I was being more diligent and more responsible and more dutiful than the average person because I knew where in the Bible it was and why we thought that and where else in the Bible it was said it, it stated those things. And right, like I actually thought I was like ahead of the curve on this stuff. When you take a step back, when you get out of the water and you start learning about water and you realize that you've been swimming in water your whole life and that water has a certain way of working and that it affects things in a certain way and that certain things like appear a certain way when you're in water but when you step out of it and you realize that not everyone's living in water you start understanding like that's actually not quote-unquote reality or truth that is an experience you're having in a certain kind of condition and then you also realize like that's not the majority of people's experience that's not everyone and even still like the people in the water what they're saying is going on in the world or is true about the world they live in isn't necessarily accurate it's what you experience and think when you're underwater like you, we got to recognize that there's a correlative like distortion that takes place because of a lot of factors that come into play and that religion uniquely has become this fascinating dangerous harmful toxic system that has produced a certain kind of person in the world today who thinks a certain kind of way only listens to and considers certain kinds of ideas or people and that you know limits the kind of conclusions they're even capable of coming to the kinds of data or evidence they're even able to observe now when it comes to deconstruction often people hear that word and think oh well that means you're just like looking for a way to walk away from the faith or to start sinning or whatever like people who don't deconstruct tend to have that kind of an attitude i've, I've noticed um <laughs> they've not deconstructed and therefore the people who are the reason they're doing it is probably because they just want to sin or because like the, the christian life is too hard they don't want to take up their cross they don't want to walk the narrow path they don't want to die to themselves they want to live according to how they feel and what they want, and they want to assert themselves as God in their lives. And while I can't speak for every deconstructing person, what I can say for myself and almost every deconstructing person I've ever talked to, and at this point, it's, that's a lot of people, a lot of kind, genuine, intelligent, like God-fearing people, um, I'd like to say like, that's not true. People deconstruct because they have like, there are holes in what they've been told is true and why. There are problems in the results what they've been told is true is producing in the lives of people. They start becoming conscious of the whole water thing and realizing this is a problem. And I've been in it and I've been part of the problem. I've actually like contributed to the problem and I've got to change now because I know better. And that journey is obviously a, co a costly one. It is a transformative one. Um, and it takes guts to do it. And I'd actually propose the people who deconstruct are the ones who have more character, who have more integrity, who are taking more responsibility and demonstrating more ownership in their, what we're going to, I'm going to use Christian language here, in their walk with God, in their faith. 
I would propose deconstruction isn't the absence of faith. I would propose that deconstruction is somebody taking their faith seriously and honoring what they believe. Um, any beliefs you have that have not been challenged, I'm like, ah, I don't know how powerful that conviction can even be. And by challenge, I don't mean people disagree with you. I mean that you personally step into that ring, right? And you like let the thing you think is true be tested. Not just like, you know, does it feel good? Does it sound good? Do a lot of people agree with it? Like, I'm talking, like, does this belief or, like, idea, like, make people's lives better? Does it uh, support them? Like, more specifically, does it remove oppression from those who have been downtrodden, those who have been bullied and bulldozed and marginalized, right? Like, why do we look at this as a standard? Because we see that in the life and teachings of Jesus. And it's in the Bible, like, the priority here is not just, you know, everyone gets to be free. The priority is, hey, there are actually some people who are experiencing more harm and more oppression than other people in society. Those people are prioritized in the kingdom of God. Those people are protected. Those people are, like, receiving equitable response from the, quote, body of Christ. So the deconstruction conversation like, tends to be well and good until Jesus shows up. The moment your deconstruction starts to pull Jesus into the mix, that's, I think, sometimes where a lot of people who have dabbled in deconstruction, like, you know, put, dig their heels in the ground, like, okay, okay I, don't, I don't mind deconstruction, I'm all about it, I'm fine with it, until you start touching Jesus. The moment you touch the story or narrative of Jesus, the gospel, deconstruction has become deceptive, harmful, you know, the work of demons, etc., it's almost laughable to see that dynamic just like copy and paste continue to be represented in this fascinating dynamic. I've seen it happen, you know, on this side of deconstructing, but that was also in me when I started. Like I was willing to look at certain things and pull apart certain things because it was obvious like this stuff doesn't line up. Yes, let's get to the bottom of this. Where is this coming from? Why do we believe this? Where did the error come from? How did we get here? Why does it keep happening? <laughs> Until it's, it brings up Jesus and then I'm like, um, I don't know, we can avoid that. And I did. I avoided Jesus for a good while in my deconstruction journey because I didn't want to lose Jesus. It was an emotional choice. I didn't want, not, not lose, Jesus, lose Jesus, but I mean like, I didn't want the story of Jesus and who he was to me, what I believed about him, to be taken away. And I think that's fair. Like, that's human, right? And I think that's true for a lot of us, especially when you're raised, when you're indoctrinated within Christianity. You're going to defend your Jesus because he's defended you your whole life, right? Like, it's a thing. So that was true for me for a while. And then one day I was talking to a friend who's a pastor who has been deconstructing for 20 years. And oh, he gave me a book and I started reading it. And the author said some pretty crazy things I was not expecting, but he substantiated these crazy claims. He was very deliberate and intentional with the way that he went about dismantling the whole thing. And it was shocking. Like so much so that I put the book down and I actually stopped reading it. <laughs> and to this day, I haven't finished that book. Um, and I went on other journeys and directions in my deconstruction, right? And yeah, it was like full and robust and amazing. And then some other books came up and they were addressing the subject and story of Jesus. And I'm like, oh, and they, they were compelling and they were like read by other people I respected. And anyway, so I picked up some books and then I started looking. 
and that's just how it works, right? One thing leads to another. Each thing doesn't stand on its own. It's like this weird interconnected web. And the moment one of these things doesn't hold weight like it used to, it then like sheds light on other things. So that absolutely happened here. And all that to say, <laughs> last Christmas at the recording of this um, was the first Christmas my Christmas was ruined in this particular way. Ruined. Like the story of Jesus, like the birth story of Jesus. I'm like, whoa. I understand how I got where I, where I did. I understand why I believed what I believed. I don't believe those things anymore. And it's less about, you know, like, it's less about belief. It's like, oh, I can't believe those things anymore because of the scholarship that I've experienced and like done and received from in looking at the birth of Jesus and the stories surrounding him and, you know, the authors and the history and the context. Like, so I guess all that to say, I'm going to wrap up this episode with an invitation. Uh, I feel a little grinchy. Like deconstruction makes you kind of a little wart of a person sometimes. And I feel a little warty here. <laughs> what am I talking about? I want to invite you to have your Christmas ruined in the way that mine was ruined a couple years ago. Actually, I guess last year. Um, and I would like to ruin your Christmas in the same way. I'll, be, I'll play the Grinch, and I'm going to basically walk you through a simplified, easier version of all the things I found that invalidated the birth story of Jesus. It's still, a, it's at this point, I look at the birth story of Jesus and I'm like, wow, this is really cool and it's beautiful and it's brilliant and I appreciate it. And wow, these authors were fascinating in the way they went about, you know, telling the story of Jesus. I think it's cool. It doesn't remove the story entirely. It's just, you don't take it literally anymore. These things don't hold the weight they used to. And then it changes how you understand the life of Jesus in a good way, in a beautiful, important, I would dare say necessary way. So those of you who are at this point in your journey and you're like, you know what? I'm ready. Ruin my Christmas. Let's look at it. Let me at least, or I'm willing to hear what you have to say or whatever. Like this is for you. I'm going to do a webinar called How the Grinch Deconstructed Christmas. I'll provide a link below for you to check it out. At the recording of this episode, um, that webinar will happen like this weekend when this episode publishes. If you're hearing this recording or this episode after all of that, um, you could probably find it on my website. Anyway, uh, we're going to do this. We're going to deconstruct the Christmas story and we're going to look at where this, these stories came from and why they're in the Bible and what, how they were meant to be read. And we're going to experience Christmas different together. If you're interested in that, check out the link below. Thank you guys for being here. Thanks for listening to my podcast. I appreciate your willingness to sit in it, to face the discomfort. Um, and yeah, there's truth to be found. There's beauty and justice to be had, and we're going to have it. All right, I'll see you in the next episode. Listen, there's more where this came from. If you want to see how deep this rabbit hole goes, check out MikeMyashiro.com.